to Crashing the War Party, where I am joined each week by my compatriot, Daniel Larson, who, like me, is doing his best every day to get under the headlines and to expose the hypocrisy and fatuousness of the Washington foreign policy establishment. This week, we have the pleasure of talking to Anatole Lieben, author, journalist, and grand strategy expert about the continued perils of U.S.-Russia relations. But before we get to Anatole, let's talk about the death of a key figure in American military and foreign policy throughout the end of the 20th and early 21st century, Colin Powell. He died this week at the age of 84 due to COVID complications. Powell's career spanned from being an army soldier and officer, beginning with two tours in Vietnam, national security advisor under President Reagan, chairman of the Joint Chiefs under George H.W. Bush, and Secretary of State under President George W. Bush. It was in that tenure that he gave the famous speech or infamous speech to the UN identifying Saddam Hussein's WMD program, which turned out to be wrong. But it was that February 2003 speech that launched the war and the rest is history. In the years since, we have gained more insight into Powell's discomfort with the evidence and the rush to war in Iraq, but the damage was clearly done and he had to live with his role in it ever since. But Colin Powell was clearly not the biggest hawk on the block and has shown over the years a proclivity for restraint. Dan, what do you think is Colin Powell's legacy and what do you think it should be? Sure, uh, th- those are good questions, Kelly, uh, because I mean that, that is what a lot of people have been talking about uh, since the news of his death uh, broke earlier this week. Um, and, and it seems like there, there are two uh, camps uh, as far as this, uh, when it comes to answering this question. There are those who will look at his role earlier in his career uh, in defining uh, what came to be known as uh, the Powell Doctrine or the Powell-Weinberger Doctrine uh, together with uh, Cap Weinberger uh, that defined the way that the U.S. should use military force overseas and, and set a very high bar uh, for using force uh, because they uh, were so burned by the experience of Vietnam and because they wanted to make sure that any future military engagement was both uh, had both popular backing uh, so that it was sustainable, and also uh, that it would be committed to with overwhelming force so that it didn't turn into a quagmire. And of course, that was put on display uh, in Operation Desert Storm, where they they basically followed that rule book for how a war should be fought. Uh, and it was, at least in the short term, very successful uh, in, in achieving what it set out to do. And so uh, if if the story had ended there, or, you know, if his career had ended with him uh, in his role as chairman of the Joint Chiefs under Bush and Clinton, and then he had retired and, and left public life, I think his uh, he would have been remembered very favorably, very fondly. Uh, and indeed, uh, he's still regarded very highly by many people, especially those in the State Department that served under him. Uh, but then, of course, with his time in the Bush administration, uh, the story changes entirely. And, and the reason that it changed is that he became party to uh, waging a war that broke all of the rules of the Powell Doctrine mm-hmm. and that, that basically repudiated everything he had stood for before. And so, and that, that's where I think a lot of people uh, lost a lot of respect for him uh, and, and also uh, I think also felt sorry for him because he, he did this to himself by throwing in with this uh, campaign to invade Iraq 
which you know, regardless of the evidence was an illegal war. Uh, yeah. you know, there, there's often an emphasis placed on, you know, did they know all of their claims were false beforehand or, you know, did they, uh, were they deliberately making things up or were they simply spinning the evidence to suit their purposes? And, and in the end, it, it almost doesn't matter uh, what, how much of it they actually knew to be false or, or whether they knew it to be false. What they were proposing to do was still illegal uh, under international law. It was still a war of aggression. And so it seems to me that that in and of itself uh, brings enormous discredit on anybody who was involved in doing that. And so, uh, I mean, so to, to, to sum up, the, the, the question of his legacy is that it's, it's a, a mixed one. It's also a tragic one because he had great success earlier in his career. Uh, and, and I think he did the right thing by the country earlier in his career. And then uh, at the, the tail end of it, at the height of his career, uh, he, he undid a lot of the good uh, that he had accomplished. And, and that's, that's regrettable. I, I will add one other thing that his, his tenure as Secretary of State, as Secretary of State, uh, was, uh, in terms of running the State Department, a fairly good one. And that's why he's still regarded so highly by people who were in the department. Uh, you know, when you compare his tenure to that of the people that followed him, uh, who mostly ran the department into the ground, uh, you, you appreciate that he was actually quite a capable uh, department head uh, as far as that goes. So that, you know, that, that also has to be part of the story. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say something now that I'm sure is going to piss off a lot of people listening. Uh, but I, I find um, that uh, I find some sympathy for Colin Powell uh, on the Iraq issue. Um, we can't, you can't uh, negate entirely his role. I mean, his he brought all of his gravitas to bear in that speech, and it was that speech that paved the way for the invasion of Iraq. Uh, he has agency. He decided to go with the evidence that was put before him and deliver the speech. Uh, we know now that he had concerns about the speech, about the evidence. You know, his uh, former chief of staff, Larry Wilkerson, has been quite vocal in the years since about their discomfort together with that evidence and the pressure they felt that they were under to deliver that speech and go with that evidence. Um, he has agency. So, you know, when it came down, it was his choice to give the speech. But I do feel um, uh, in regard to that pressure that it was real. And we know now that this cabal of neoconservatives in the Pentagon at the time, led by Dick Cheney, uh, you know, Scooter Libby, Paul Wolfowitz and the rest, Donald Rumsfeld, um, they were completely um, devoted to going to war with Iraq. This devotion dates back to the 90s under the Clinton administration. They were going to come, come hell or high water. This is during a period when Condoleezza Rice was talking about the mushroom cloud and how we, we needed to go to war to avoid a nuclear holocaust. Uh, this comes at a time just a few years, two years after 9-11, in which the entire country was focused on a, a terrorism threat. And uh, so all of the spirit was behind going to war in Iraq, or at least um, not being seen as being soft on terror. And so it was a different time. It, and, and to criticize him, we, we can definitely criticize his decision, but you know it's it's good to put it all into context. 
And I say that because his record spells out a man who has, has, is more um, inclined towards restraint throughout his career. career. Uh, you mentioned the Powell Doctrine. That counts for something. You know, he right. wasn't a man that spent his entire career, um, you know, pushing for the use of military force to solve our problems around the world. And I wrote a, a little blog post yesterday. It was the first thing that that came to mind when I heard that he died was that epic exchange with Madeleine Albright that he right. accounted in his own memoirs in which he was actually counseling against using force in Bosnia. And you have the entire uh, Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton uh, inner circle at the time itching to get involved uh, in your classic humanitarian interventionist you know, approach. They felt that it was it was our role as the United States to to intervene and and, and, and to um, sort of establish uh, peace and democracy. You know, whether it be uh, at the at the at the point of a gun or or out or otherwise. And he would say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's 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 think about this." And Madeleine Albright made that um, you know. Cla- uh, a famous or infamous uh, a statement where she says, well, something to the effect of, you know, why, why bother? Uh, what, what's the point of having this superb military you're always talking about if we can't use it? And right. he wrote in his memoirs that he almost had an aneurysm when he heard those words, because here he was a soldier. He'd lived through several, uh, two tours in Vietnam, Persian Gulf War, Mogadishu, you know, uh, or did that occur yet? Yes, Mogadishu was. Yeah, that, that happened almost right before. immediately. It, it was it was one of the first things to happen when Clinton was president. Right, and exactly. Then this, yeah, this would have, I Black think Hawk the down. exchange was a couple of years later, yeah. Right, and so he, he, you know, he's he's been there, done that, and here, you know, here's Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton itching to just start dropping bombs, and um, I, you know, I think that speaks well of him uh, that he was he was trying, um, futilely as we know now, uh, to um, exert some restraint over the situation. So I feel like it's a mixed bag and there's people, there are people like that in Washington who they don't live up to our expectations. We want them to be what we want them to be. We wanted Colin Paul to be the guy that stood up for restraint, no matter what, hundred percent of the time. Um, and he, he didn't, you know, he's also a loyal soldier. And I believe in that case, he was under a lot of pressure under the second Bush administration. And um, he was a loyal soldier and uh, obviously failed our expectations. But I don't I don't put him in the same category as a Donald Rumsfeld or uh, Paul Wolfowitz or Dick Cheney. And I feel our program should be directed at those people and their their legacies should be more more harshly cast, let's just say, than Colin Powell. Sure. I mean, there, there, are, there are main drivers uh, behind the invasion. There, there are people who are really agitating for it. Um, I, you know, I think that in Powell's case, he, he clearly saw the potential, some of the potential downsides. He, he recognized some of the risks. Um, I, you know, I think that where, where people give him a hard time or, or, or find fault with him is that he he did see those problems but didn't uh didn't do enough to to slow it down or, or yeah. to prevent it uh, and i mean as you say uh, these people were hell-bent on doing it uh pretty much no matter what and so i you know i in that sense i do 
cut him a little slack that I don't think he could have single-handedly stopped it. Uh, where, you know, sometimes people will talk about it as though the speech that he gave at the UN was the decisive moment. And, and I think Spencer Ackerman wrote a really good post about uh, all of this uh, a few days ago, where he pointed out that by the time that that speech was being given in February of 03, the decision to invade had been made. It, right. it was already over. The, the presentation to the UN was just sort of a, a box checking exercise. Yeah, um, you're right. The, the, the vote in Congress, the, the fall before that, is where the decision could have been stopped, I, I think, if you could have somehow gotten majorities to vote no. But as you say, the, the mood and, and the, the uh, sort of public anger that, that was festering after 9-11 uh, that we all saw uh, was a, a major factor in, in driving Congress to vote yes on this, even though uh, it's clearly, it was clearly a terrible idea uh, to vote yes on this, uh, since they were essentially giving Bush carte blanche to do what he liked. Yeah. And, and we now, you know, and we see from that experience why you should, ne- well, Congress should never again give pre-authorization to a president uh, when War is not necessary, and and clearly war was not necessary there. Uh, it, it was it was a preventive war. It was a war of aggression, and so uh, it was it was that vote in October of the previous year that was the the real uh, moment when it might have been stopped and it wasn't. And so, you know, to the extent that Powell was on board with the administration's propaganda campaign uh, throughout two thousand two, uh, you know, he he's part of that problem too but uh but the, you know the, as you say the driving force is coming from somewhere else yeah and uh you know I, i'm feeling obviously magnanimous because uh, he just passed away and sure. you know it was obvious they were using him i mean he had more credibility with the american people at that point in his career than anybody including george w bush and condoleezza rice and the rest of them and so by, by, you know, delivering him up to make that speech was a, um, I mean, it, it was a brilliant move because it, it enjoyed all the credibility and capital that he had built up with the American people and the world, mm-hmm. you know, uh, over the span of his career. Unfortunately, it killed all of that credibility and um, capital. And he, he spent, I think he spent the last 20 years trying to build that back up. And um, I mean, you remember, Dan, I mean, there were all these always these perennial calls for him to run for office oh, sure. because he had the strength and the, and, the, and the solid nature of being a military man who worked for Republicans. Um, he, you know, had, you know, had, you know, proven his worth, whether it be in war, but also in diplomacy. And he was not a partisan in the usual regard. So yes, he worked for Republicans, but you never you never got this strong sense that he was a party man. And I think that appealed to both Democrats and Republicans. And they said, "Whoa, could we get him to run on our ticket?" <laughs> and I know that went away largely after what happened in Iraq because everybody knew that that would come back to bite him if he did. Um, you know, run for office. But I, I do feel that he was used like so many people in the Bush administration who used people up and threw them away um, just to get their way. And I blame the neocons because that's their MO. I mean, I mean, now that we're on the subject, I mean, you know, uh, 
Powell, I was just reading, you know, about him today, just getting some background. And, you know, he at first had endorsed John McCain for president in 2008, and he later shifted to Obama. And one of the reasons was that he didn't like Sarah Palin. And he thought that that was a risky move, you know, for for, uh, John McCain to put her on the ticket. And, you know, Sarah Palin was a creature of the neoconservatives, Bill Kristol et al. And um, whatever you want to say about Sarah Palin, she too was a victim of getting used by the neocons because they dropped her like a hot potato after she kind of went off the rails and she didn't do what she was supposed to do in terms of getting John McCain elected. And I just think back and I'm thinking, wow, these people just, it's like scorched earth with them. And we see their trail of victims all over the landscape. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, I, I remember during the, the run-up to the invasion, I remember that as the, the war debate was going on, that you know, clearly with, within the administration, uh, Powell and the State Department were the ones at least counseling some kind of prudence or were trying to, to at least were trying to prepare for the war that they were about to get into. Uh, and of course, as we know, uh, the, the White House did not pay any attention to any of those preparations. They did not uh, actually think through any of the implications of what they were about to do. And so um, that's, uh, so, you know, it's unfortunate that, that that side of the administration ended up winning out time and again. And, you know, unfortunately that that's the, the nature of the executive in this country where the state department has almost no resources. Uh, the Pentagon and the white house have all of them and whatever they, you know, whatever those institutions decide to do, that's what ends up happening. Um, and you know the the advocates for diplomacy are uh, badly outnumbered. Yeah, and I and I'd like to think that uh, Colin Powell, if he had lived, if he was healthy, if he was uh, engaged in his retirement, would actually have uh, found a way into um, you know the res- the Washington restraint movement because I think. Uh, of all the retired uh, government officials uh, that we are now trying to tap to help us proceed with reforming foreign policy, you know, he he checks a lot of the boxes. And, you know, obviously there are, are, are issues, but I do think that throughout his career, he, you know, he has reflected a, a person who um, really in the Powell Doctrine only saw the use of force, uh, you know, only in, in, if absolutely necessary. And I think that if we can find more people who, uh, you know, represent that point of view in government, in the military, uh, we, can, we, we can really make some changes. Our guest today is Anatole Levin. I'm very excited to say um, he's a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and in the War Studies Department of King's College in London. His latest book, Climate Change and the Nation State, was published in March 2020 by Penguin in the UK and Oxford University Press in the US. 
and is to appear in, or it has appeared in an updated paperback edition, which we would love to talk about on the show today. Um, just as an aside, uh, Anatole is also a working journalist, has been working in journalism for many years in Russia, and is there, he's there right now uh, attending the Valdai conference in Sochi, and he's also going to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, thank you, Anatole, for, for taking the time to be with us today, given your tight schedule. Very glad to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about the Valdai Conference, what you're getting out of it? I know you're going to be speaking. Maybe you can share a little bit ab about what you are going to be saying in your remarks today. Well, they've asked me to be one of the commentators, along with um, uh, John Mearsheimer, uh, you know, Excellent. from the University of Chicago, uh, and uh, other people on a, a new book that they've produced by a leading Russian scholar, Timofey Borjachov, uh, on uh, who's also a member of the Valdai, uh, on uh, Russia's relationship with the European Union, uh, and basically asking whether uh, we can move to a plurality of uh, ethical. Um, D different you know ethical views of the world I, I fear my answer will be no um not at, at present because uh a form of sort of civilization belief in civilizational um uh, identity and civilizational mission is is pretty much baked into the european union uh, as it has become baked into the self-perceptions of a number of um European states, uh, and it will be very difficult, I think, for the European Union to decide to abandon that. Of course, uh, at some stage in the future, the European Union may be forced to abandon it uh, if you know some of the existing political trends of disintegration within the European Union uh, move further. Uh, or, of course, um, depending on what happens in the United States and the US-European relationship. But I don't think there's any chance of this being an actual you know, voluntary process from Brussels, no. I find it's um, you're in a unique position of being in Russia at a time when we're constantly talking here in the US about the relationship, the US relationship with Russia, as, as you've written about a ton, has deteriorated um, much over the last, I'd say, two administrations, particularly under the Trump administration and Russiagate. And you've you know, written quite eloquently on the need to reestablish those ties and um, turn, turn that around uh, for all obvious reasons that we can't continue to have this sort of simmering uh, cold war with, with uh, Russia. And Vladimir Putin, do you? What are you hearing there? Do you get any sense of of whether that relationship is deteriorating further? Do you feel that there is a sense of uh, maybe hope that things might turn around? I mean, what are you getting on that end of the world? Well, just in the past couple of days, there's been you know one good sign uh, and uh, two bad signs. The good sign is uh, the Russians allowing uh, Victoria. 
Newland uh, to visit to talk about relations. Uh, clearly, I mean, the Russians recognize, I think, that the Biden administration is not looking for a new crisis. You know, they may not be able to do anything or willing to do anything to remove the, you know, the ultimate roots of, of crisis, but at least they're not trying to stoke things up. But unfortunately, there have been uh, two other very negative uh, developments. One is, well, I mean, it's nothing new, but I don't think that it was necessary for Lloyd Austin to say yet again uh, that Georgia and Ukraine should join NATO, uh, partly because, you know, this is an official position that everybody knows. There's no need to say it again, but also because it's not going to happen. It, it simply is not going to happen. Um, but the other very negative thing, um, I mean, initiated, I have to say, by NATO, was, of course, NATO's expulsion of most of the, in fact, the vast majority of the remaining uh, Russian diplomatic staff uh, accredited to um, uh, to NATO. Um, and now today, Russia has retaliated by shutting down uh, both missions. Um, now, uh, this is, I mean, inevitable. The, the thing was that made NATO's action a bit odd is that uh, these expulsions of spies, and by the way, I mean, I have no doubt they were spies. One always assumes, you know, I mean, I've never been entirely clear what the difference is between a spy and somebody who obviously tells his intelligence or her intelligence service everything that they hear. I mean, that's a distinction without a difference to me. Uh, but um, the point was that usually when you carry out these expulsions, it's because of something specific that has been done, you know, some specific action, you know, organized plot or whatever. This seemed to be just a, a, a thing. Well, we've always known these people were spies. Now we're kicking them out. Why now? You see, uh, knowing, as they must have, that Russia would retaliate. Um, now, the result is, you see, that... Um, I mean, you still have military to military, uh, you know, connections with the U.S., though greatly reduced. Uh, but you know, you you do have this situation in which you know you have NATO planes and NATO ships in the Baltic uh, and the Black Sea, and it is very important to have these connections, of course, so people can inform each other of what they're doing, uh, so as to avoid. Accidents, accidental clashes, accidental collisions, of which you know there have been a number of tragic examples, of course, uh, in the past. So this um, this breach of relations is both unnecessary uh, and dangerous, and um, it, it it also reflects this. Uh, I mean. Uh, originally an American attitude, which has now spread to Europe, and you know, the Russians are now retaliating in, in kind, uh, that you punish people by not talking to them. I mean, that is the antithesis of diplomacy. I mean, the whole point is, you, you know, to, to some extent, the people you most need to talk to are your rivals and enemies, especially if there's any you know, serious danger of, of, of an actual clash with them. But, you know, what I can't get is that you, you've just mentioned it's, it's complete swinging back and forth. On one hand, we're sending Victoria Nuland over there. Um, we have kind of uh, expressed the desire to get back on track. But then on the other hand, expelling, you know, these uh, NATO delegates or associates or I'm sorry, I don't know the, the correct name for it. 
and, and, and having uh, Lloyd Austin out there saying the door is open to Ukraine and Georgia uh, for NATO membership. So why the mixed messaging? Is this sort of a strategy that they don't want to appear like they're too um, forthcoming uh, at the same time looking tough? I mean, what what's your gut on this? Well, I mean, a dear old friend and former Assistant Secretary of State, Bill Maines, once said to me that you should never, ever underestimate the capacity of the Washington political system for sheer confusion, um, you know, lack of coordination. Um, we, we shouldn't necessarily uh, assume that this is a, a, you know, a deliberate thing. Uh, it can also just be, you know, a failure to... Coordinate. <laughs> Well, and but as you say, I mean, also you know, giving giving different things to different people without realizing the right. you know the, the the contradictions involved. Absolutely, Anatole, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, just coming back to the to Lloyd Austin's trips uh, to Ukraine and Georgia, I saw that he uh, signed a, a new defense agreement with Georgia this week, uh, and and they're talking about keeping the door open to them for NATO membership. Uh, why does the U.S., why, in your opinion, why does the U.S. keep stringing these countries along with such a dangerous promise when, as you say, we all know it's not actually going to happen? I think it's it's autopilot um, to a great extent. You know, okay. I mean, so many uh, American policies are on autopilot, uh, yeah. often, you know, basically for domestic political reasons. I mean, look at policy towards Cuba, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> um, policy towards Iran for a great, to, to a great extent, you know. Uh, and policy towards North Korea, you know, just the the, the incapacity to make serious changes, uh, partly because of the domestic unpopularity that it would bring, you know, in its in its wake. Um, but uh, it, yes, I mean, the, but the key, you know, the key thing to keep in mind here, uh, you know, a, a defense agreement with. Uh, Ukraine and Georgia, that is basically a lie. It's a lie. Mm -hmm. America did not defend Georgia in 2008. When uh, when it was suggested by um, Vice President Cheney that America might go some distance towards doing it, the Pentagon under Gates shot it down immediately. America did not defend Ukraine in 2014, and there is no reason whatsoever to think that America ever will defend these countries uh, in future. So you know, what happened in 2008 was basically that Saakashvili of, of Georgia uh, believed this quasi-American promise, right. which of course was, was not a formal promise, it wasn't a, a legal obligation, um, and attacked Russia in South Ossetia with disastrous results for Georgia. So, I mean, basically, Austin and his masters uh, have to pray very, very hard uh, that nobody in Georgia or Ukraine actually believes this stuff. Right. Well, I guess I am a little bit encouraged that this is as far as they've been willing to go so far, because the Ukrainian government has been very insistent on uh, trying to get a membership action plan out of NATO, and and NATO has uh, continuously uh, brushed them off and, and dismissed it. Uh, so that in, in that sense, it's a it's a good sign that they're not taking any more aggressive action than they they already have. Well, that's also, of course, because as previously, um, well, at least we don't know now with the new German government, but certainly in the past, uh, Germany, France, and indeed other countries, other NATO members, uh, were, were willing to veto it, right? Um, or at least to 
to, to put it off indefinitely. The you know Russian occupation of Crimea, uh, annexation of Crimea, and the Russian presence in the Donbass uh, means uh, you know NATO membership for Ukraine implies a NATO commitment to go to war for Ukraine to recover these territories, to go to war with Russia. <laughs> That's a damn serious commitment to make. Absolutely, and 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 for over things that don't really matter uh, to the rest of the alliance, uh, certainly not to the United States. Uh, just one more question. Uh, I know we're short on time today. Uh, one of the areas that U.S. and Russia have had some success in cooperating on in the last couple decades has been arms control. Uh, as we know, New START is now the only arms control treaty left standing uh, after it was extended earlier this year. Uh, do you think there are any prospects uh, for successful negotiation of a new arms control agreement between the U.S. and Russia? And uh, will the U.S. have to put missile defense on the table in order to make any progress? Um, I, I heard uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, speak today. And he um, uh, actually expressed himself in cautiously optimistic terms about the prospects for um uh, for, nu- for nuclear uh, arms negotiations, you know, nothing very, um, you know, tremendously uh, optimistic. But at least he said, you know, that the process is there. Uh, but um, yes, I mean, uh, it will have to be uh, on the table missile defence. Uh, at, at least, I mean, especially if. Um, uh, America wants to avoid a new arms race in terms of these hypersonic missiles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which are being created by the Russians and Chinese in order to uh, defeat, um, you know, mis- missile defenses. Uh, so it will have to be on the table. Um, but w- where that goes, so difficult to to say. But at least, um, you know, the door is not closed on that, uh, just as, by the way, it's not closed on um, negotiations for a, a treaty on um, cybersecurity either. Of course, the process of getting there will be extremely difficult, possibly impossible. Uh, but uh, at least, you know, um, from the Russian side, they haven't closed that door. Well, thank you so much, Anatole. The phone's ringing because they need you downstairs to speak at your panel. So um, thank you so much for taking the time with us. That's very generous of you. Not at all. I hope you'll come on again because I know Dan and I had a ton more questions to ask. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, once once I'm through with this and, you know, either peacefully established in Moscow or back in, in England, let's, let's schedule it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.